Good evening. Wednesday night, I am going to continue on with what we were on on Sunday. So, we're still on Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, and we got through to verse 12. But, there are some things that I skipped over so I could get to a certain point, and I want to go back and uh, just hit a few points that I did not do on Sunday. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being here with us tonight. Father, we invite you to be in our presence. Father, we want to be a people who don't just assume that we, but we do hunger and thirst after righteousness. We hunger and thirst after you. And Father, we do this because of you and what you've done for us. So thank you, Lord, for all your many blessings. Thank you for the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that guides us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So when we got to the, uh, the, the hungry and thirsty, which was verse 6 of chapter 5, it was the fourth beatitude that we were talking about. And I want to read, read, I had it in my notes, but I did not have the, uh, the, the book in front of me. I left it. I can't remember. I think I left it in the Sunday school class on Sunday. So when I saw it on my notes, I looked around and I'm like, I don't even have that commentary. So you all know how much I, I love John Phillips uh, and his commentaries. And I wanted to read what he said, his little title for the hunger you know, to hunger and thirst after righteousness, and you will be filled. If that's the way you are, you will be filled. That's your promise. And he says, where we aim. We want, we, that's how, how he stated it. And I just want to read a, a couple paragraphs of what he said in the commentary. And I'm going to, there's going to be more. As I go through this, we're going to talk about some other things. But, uh, so the fourth beatitude, this is John Phillips. In, in the, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, exploring the Gospel of Matthew, the fourth beatitude tells us that we are to aim at being righteous. We are to hunger and thirst after righteousness. A person who is desperately hungry or thirsty can think of nothing else. Hunger and thirst are the most basic and demanding drives of our physical nature. No one can ignore them for long. Happy is the man who has an equally strong desire to be like God. None of the world's religions can satisfy the human craving to be good. It is not in man's fallen nature to be righteous. And all religion can do is cultivate his fallen nature. We are made righteous practically by the Holy Spirit. According to the epistle to the Romans, righteousness is first revealed, then required, then received, and only after that reproduced. Then he's got in parentheses, the word righteousness occurs 
in 33 verses in Romans. Now, that's a little tricky. So if you look up how many times the word righteousness is in Romans, it's 39 times. But he says that the word righteousness occurs in 33 verses in Romans. Did you catch that? So how is it? There's verses that have more than one, right? So I wrote it down. I looked because I'm like, you got to check. You got to check people. You got to check me. You got to be Bereans. You have to read the scriptures for yourself and make sure you're not being misled. So I wrote down, okay, 33, it's in 33 verses. Well, in Romans 4.11, the word righteousness is in that verse twice. In 9.30, three times. That's a long verse. Three times the word righteousness. In 9.31, this is all Romans, 9.31, twice. And in Romans 10.3, three times the word righteousness. So that makes six extra times above and beyond what he says. So, all right, so it's in 33 verses. Do you realize the significance of 33? Me neither. If you figure it out, let me know. But I did, but I did, you think about it. And then what about 39? There's 39 times righteousness is in the book of Romans. So is 39 a significant number? We know how 40 is a very significant number, but 39? So what you got, Jesus was how old when he went to the cross? 33. We think 33 and a half is what, what, how old he was when he went to the cross. Something like that. So maybe this 33 has something to it. So when you can't figure out the significance of 33, start thinking about the factors. 3 times 11. What's 11? What does, is the number 11 significant in Scripture? Now, you already know the number 3 is very significant. It's, a, it's one of the perfect numbers of the Bible, along with 7 and 10 and 12. So let, let me read a little bit out of E.W. Bullinger's book. This is Number in Scripture. And this is okay because I said a long time ago we might get into numbers on Wednesday night. So we've done a little bit of it. We're going to do a little bit more tonight. The number three. In this number, we have quite a new set of phenomena. We come to the first geometrical figure. Two straight lines cannot possibly enclose any space or form a plane figure. Neither can two plane surfaces form a solid. Three lines are necessary to form a plane figure. And three dimensions of length, breadth, and height are necessary to form a solid. Hence, three is the symbol of the cube, the simplest form of solid figure. As two is the symbol of the square or plane contents, so three is the symbol of the cube or solid contents. Three, therefore, stands for that which is solid, real, substantial, complete, and entire. All things that are specifically complete are stamped with this number three. God's attributes are three. 
omnificent, omnipresent, omnipotence, right? There are three great divisions completing time, past, present, and future. Three persons in grammar express, express and include all the relationships of mankind. There we go, first person, second person, third person. Okay, uh, thought, word, and deed complete the sum of human capability. You've heard some of these before. I've, I've listed these before. Three degrees of comparison complete our knowledge of qualities. The simplest proposition requires three things to complete the subject, the predicate, and the... I don't even want to read that one. Three, uh, three is the... denotes divine perfection. So he's got all this list of threes. And it goes on and on for three because it's so significant. So that would describe Jesus very well, right? The number three would describe him. You think about the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That's, that's one of the three that, that, we, that I, I would see in here. So what about this number 11? If 10 is the number which marks the perfection of divine order, then 11 is an addition to it, subversive of and undoing that order. If 12 is the number which marks the perfection of divine government, then 11 falls short of it. So that whether we regard it as being 10 plus 1 or 12 minus 1, it is the number which marks disorder, disorganization, imperfection, and disintegration. There is not much concerning it in the Word of God, but what there is is significant especially as a factor, and from what we have already seen in another part of this book. That, right, so the Dukes of Edom were 11 in number. So the Edomites, the Dukes, there was 11 of them. And Edom, though closely related to Israel, was different from it in order and government, while the bitterest hatred existed between them. The word for Duke is a multiple of 13, so we, we'll talk about 13 here in just a little bit. All right, you know the 12 sons of Jacob. You hear that all the time. But there was a time there was only 11. And when the brothers went down into Egypt to buy food, their brother was standing right in front of them. They didn't know who he was. And he, they were, he asked them questions, and then they were explaining, and they said, and one is not. We are... Of of my we're, we're all twelve, but but one is not. And look at how chaotic everything was at home when Joseph was missing, and they and, and the father thought he was dead. It was eleven. Think about the twelve disciples when the one betrayed him and went out and died. He he hung himself and then he he fell into the bottom there and busted up. The the other disciples. One long after that, they were just really uh, intent on getting another one because 11 was just disorganized. So 11, there, Jehoiakim, he reigned 11 years. And that's when Nebuchadnezzar was doing all his stuff. And then Zedekiah, he reigned 11 years. Same thing with Nebuchadnezzar. So Jesus was on earth for, for th about 33 years, so... It's 3 times 11, and then he was cut off. 
So that 11 would be bad things happening. And then there was twice 1,100 was talked about, and that was in Judges, and that's what the Philistines uh, gave to um, um, Delilah to betray Samson. And Israel lost their most famous judge. But they, were, they offered to pay her uh, 1,100 shekels of silver. I believe it was what it was. And then there was uh, the, the tribe of Dan and Ephraim and what they did, uh, bringing idols in. And it was an image with the 1,100 shekels. So that, they were blotted out, those two tribes. And you don't see them in uh, Revelation 7. So anytime you see 11 in Scripture, it's, it's bad. So we, so people, mankind, the number 6 represents mankind. The number 11 represents us as being incomplete, disorganized, we're messed up until... So we try to do things on our own, under our own power, then we fail miserably. Just like what we, we were reading... Uh, in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, if we try to do all of those things, we see where we're failing. When we put our efforts into doing those things, we're, it's just not right. It's, it, we can't complete it. But you bring Jesus. You notice on Sunday, I kept, try, I kept trying to point you to Jesus and how he, complete, he makes it right. So when you bring the number 3 into our disorganization of 11, 3 times 11, 33, maybe... What about in 39? There's 39 times in Romans that righteousness is used. Think of the factors. Look at what we did with 3 times 11. That makes 33. What makes 39? 3 times 13. The number of rebellion, apostasy, that's what we are. Unless Jesus comes in and saves us. Then you got 3 times 13, 39 times righteousness is in the book of Romans. Just saying. You know, just saying. You know, what he puts in parentheses made me do all of that. All right, so now you're, now you're getting into what I do during the week, and especially on Saturday morning early. And the hours and hours and hours I get into all this stuff. And the three and a half pages of notes that I try to get in a 30-minute sermon on Sunday, and it never works. So, this Wednesday night is awesome. So I, can, I feel like I can get the other stuff that I wasn't able to get to, I can, I can touch on it. With people, you know, the people who are sitting here right now, the people who are here right now, you, you, you are the perfect picture of hunger and thirst after righteousness. You're, hunger, you're, you're hungering and thirsting after the Lord. That's what I see when I see you guys. We are constituted righteous. This is back to John Phillips. We are constituted righteous positionally by receiving as ours, the righteousness of Christ. Our standing before God is thereby made perfect. Our standing. 
We're reckoned, you know, it's an accounting term. You're reckoned to be righteous. But, but really you're not, okay? Remember, there was really 13 tribes. There was 13 tribes of Israel in reality. But, in the, but, but God looked at it as 12. He always called it 12. But 13 is the number of rebellion and apostasy. When, when people look at you, they see 13. But when God looks at you, when you're in Christ, He sees 12. He sees perfect, governmental. He, he sees something different. He's, he's, he's perfectly just, and you must be hitting Christ for Him to see you that way. So our standing is different than our state. All right. So, and you'll hear people like John Phillips and 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 all these people that I, I love from years gone by, and they'll talk about that. And if we have time, we're going to get into uh, a little section of uh, Schofield and and what he says. And I got I got a little gift for you. Okay. Uh, our standing before God is thereby made perfect. We are made righteous practically, and righteousness is the key to practical Christianity by the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit who imparts to us the divine nature and enables us to overcome our old Adam nature, that, that flesh that always is constantly giving us a bother. But that's our Adam nature and it's the Holy Spirit doing His thing that causes us to be able to actually be Christians and, and do the works. Okay, This work deals with our state, which is all too often imperfect. Okay, We, we see that. So Sunday school, like this past Sunday, that we got into all that. If you remember, we, we, we were talking about. In, in reality, we're imperfect, but in Christ, God sees us as perfect. Our standing and state will be in perfect harmony when we receive our resurrection bodies. Then we will be like Him for all eternity. In the meantime, the regenerated individual hungers and thirsts after righteousness in the happy anticipation that his desire is not going to be left unfulfilled. One of the horrors of hell is the fact that God will ultimately say to the lost, He that is unjust or unrighteous, let him be unjust or unrighteous still. That's Revelation 22, 11. Lost people, listen listen to this carefully, and and you'll you'll know what I'm talking about if you you, uh, pick up on this. Lost people will crave righteousness with utter hopelessness. Not one drop of the water of life will be able to reach them where they are. Fingertip? What, is, what are you thinking? You're thinking of Lazarus, the, the rich man and Lazarus, and, and Luke, where Lazarus is in on the other side of the great abyss, and he's looking across that. He can see Abraham, and he can see uh, the, the poor man Lazarus. He can see him. So, so the rich man's over in the, on the other side. He sees Lazarus with Abraham, and he asks, Abraham, would, would you let him dip his finger in water? I just want one drop of water on my tongue. Pretty cool. Um, all right, that's it uh, out of that book. I can put that one aside. The number book is done. Checked it off my list. Thirteen. This is, all right. We go down to thirteen because we. I got to this in the prayer at the end of the sermon. I got into the salt, 
salt of the earth and light of the world. So I want to read. Ronnie was paying close attention on Sunday, sitting over there. He could see what I've got. He's like, he never got to the big book. <laughs> I had it marked. And we, we ended up, you know, it was, a long, it was a long service. We had a lot going on during the service. And then so the, the sermon ended up going till past 12, quite a bit past 12. So I wasn't able to get, like I said, wasn't able to get to a lot of this. 13 and 14 of Matthew 5. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor... Wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot. That they actually let me let me read this. This 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 big and heavy. So I'm gonna set it down. Jesus this this is the, the believer's Bible commentary. And I'm really liking it. I like it a lot. I, I bought the last one they had down at Scripture Truth. Y'all know when I first brought it up here several weeks ago. I went back yesterday. And I, um, there was th- three or four more. They, they restocked. This might be new. This is the Bible right here. Might be new. It's... It, it's new, so it's really got sharp edges on it. You've got to be real careful. This is my new two-edged sword. It's large print. I've been, the older I get, the more difficulty I have. So you notice I'm always like pulling my glasses down. and I'm, So I, I can read this. I think, I, I think I'm going to be able to read this now without having to do all that. That's my, that's my excuse. I'm sticking to it. Jesus likened his disciples to salt. They were to the world what salt is in everyday life. Salt seasons food. It hinders the spread of corruption. Right? Salt cured ham. You know, it, it pre, it's a preservative. We are to stop the spread of corruption as being salt of the earth. That's what we're described as, as being followers of Jesus Christ. That's our, one of our jobs. We are to be salt. So we're going to stop the spread of corruption. It creates thirst, like I said in the prayer Sunday. You hear people say, well, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Well, you can give them some salt. They'll be way more willing to drink when they get to the water. That's what we do to people in the world. We give them a little salt to where they can become a little more thirsty. So when we finally get them to Jesus, maybe they'll drink. He is the living water. It creates thirst. It brings out the flavor. So, Jesus' followers, they add, you know, they add flavor to life, to, to, what, to just to human society. Serve, it's, we serve as a preservative and make others long for the righteousness described in the preceding verses. Okay, if salt loses its flavor, how can its saltiness be restored? There is no way to restore the true natural taste. Once it has lost its flavor, salt is good for nothing. It is discarded on a footpath. So, 
All right, I'm going to read. This, this is, uh, he's got a quote in here from Albert Barnes' comment. Uh, the salt used in this country is a chemical compound. You realize that salt, and this is not in this commentary. Uh, it's probably in John Phillips' commentary, but salt, it's, it's uh, chloride. It's, what is it? Sodium chloride. Sodium chloride. If you take the sodium away from the chloride and you just ate that part of it, what would happen? You'd die within minutes, right? Your insides would just burn up. So the salt you put on your food, it's as deadly as it can be without the sodium part of it. But the two together does all kinds of wonderful things. Preserves, stops the corruption, it brings out flavor. It's, 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 it's very useful. Salt is actually a miracle product, and really light is too, when we get to that part. So he's saying it's a chemical compound in this country, and if the saltiness were lost, or it were to lose its savor, there would be nothing remaining. But over there in Israel, in those areas, it was, it was a lot more to it than just sodium chloride. There was other things that were uh, attached with it, and when the saltiness part of it was gone, there were still things there. But it was good for nothing because it didn't do what it was supposed to do. So they would take it out and throw it in the pass. So whatever was left over, it would almost be like uh, us spraying some Roundup around to keep the weeds from growing up in our walking path. But it, and it would help you know, maybe sturdy the ground up or something. I don't know, but that's what they used it for over in Israel. When the saltiness did, its, did what it's supposed to do, then they would end up throwing it out to get rid of it on their walking pass. Which, I spread a bunch of gravel today, so that's basically the same thing. Throwing gravel out on the walking path or where you drive. Uh, the disciple, this is back to uh, this, this commentary, the disciple has one great function to be the salt of the earth by living out the terms of discipleship listed in the Beatitudes and throughout the rest of the sermon. If he fails to exhibit his spiritual reality, this spiritual reality, men will tread his testimony under their feet. See the connection? If you... If you, if you it's, it's a difference between being a professor of faith and the real thing, truly being born again. If you don't live up to what you say you are, people are watching. And if you don't have the saltiness that you're supposed to have being a disciple, then you'll be, your testimony will be tread underfoot. It's worthless. You're, you're losing your testimony by not you know, living up to these Sermon on the Mount Beatitudes. All right, so 14. Ye are the light. I'm reading out of the Bible. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. 
Jesus, this is back to believers, Bible commentary, Jesus also calls Christians the light of the world. He spoke of himself as the light of the world in John 8, 12, and John 12, 35, and 36, and 46. The relationship between these two statements is that Jesus is the source of light. Christians are the reflection of his light. Okay? Jesus, he's the source. We are to be a reflection of that light. Their function is to shine for Him just as the moon reflects the glory of the sun. The Christian is like a city that is set on a hill. It is elevated above its surroundings and it shines in the midst of darkness. Those whose lives exhibit the traits of Christ's teaching cannot be hidden. People do not light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they put it on a lampstand so that it will give light to, to all who are in the house. He did not intend that we hoard the light of his teaching for ourselves. You know, I've seen it in years gone by, especially in a workplace where somebody might know more and they don't want to let anybody else know, like job security. They just want to be better than you and they don't, if they know something, we would, we would send the people with the most seniority, they'd go to Ohio and go to some big seminar, and they would learn all this stuff, and they were supposed to come back and teach everybody else. Nope. They wouldn't teach, teach us anything. So we had, a new, we had a young engineer come in from MIT. He come down, and he took over our department. This is when I worked over at Ingersoll. And this young guy, young brainy dude, he didn't pick the people with the most seniority. He picked the two youngest guys, I was one of them, to do all the learning because he knew we would teach everybody. He was way smarter. <clears throat> and he really, he turned, that, he turned that whole department around and it was extremely productive. I couldn't believe the production that came out of it compared to what it was. So we are, so when it comes to what you know about the Bible, I ha, I've learned that the more Going back to teaching Sunday school classes in the past and the jail ministry for 11 years and all that stuff, the more you give what you've been given by the Holy Spirit and what you learn in the Bible, the more you give, the more He'll give you. The more He can trust you with. You, you, you can't ever teach too much and give away too much. He keeps filling you back up. But that we share it with others... We should let our light so shine that as people see our good works, they will glorify our Father in heaven. The emphasis is on the ministry of Christian character. The winsomeness of lives in which Christ is seen speaks louder than the persuasion of words. We all know that. Our actions speak louder than our words. Our words will mean nothing if we don't live what we say we believe. Now, this, the next uh, part of this is talking about Christ fulfilling the law. He said that he didn't come to destroy the law. So what verse are we on? 17. 517 of Matthew. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to, dis to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, 
One jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Then it it gets into the, you've heard that the, the, the Ten Commandments say, thou shalt not kill. But then he goes on to share that it's more than just that. It's even hating your brother or disliking someone, what, what actually leads to the murder, the killing. The, the, we, I read the part about the adultery. You know, thou, you've read that thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you, those who look upon a woman and lust after her, he's already committed adultery with her in, his, in their hearts. So he's getting to that pure heart issue of what he just told them in the Beatitudes. Remember, this is Matthew and this is kingdom of heaven stuff. We can learn from it. It is our aim. But if you don't remember 3 times 11 and 3 times 13, you will never get it. If you try to, if you try to accomplish this being an 11 and leave 3 out, Jesus being 3, perfect, he's, you've got to have it together. Three times 11, three times 13, we are rebellious and apostasy is all over us as 13. But when we bring Jesus in, then we can accomplish this. It's all about making sure your eyes are on Jesus. All right, back to the Believer's Bible Commentary. Most revolutionary leaders sever all ties with the past and repudiate the traditional exiting order. Not so the Lord Jesus. He upheld the law of Moses and insisted that it must be fulfilled. Jesus had not come to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them. He clearly insisted that not one jot or one tittle would pass from the law until it was completely fulfilled. It is important to notice that Jesus did not say that the law would never pass away. He said it would not pass away till all was fulfilled. This distinction has ramifications for the believer today, and since the believer's relation to the law is rather complicated, we are going to take time to summarize the Bible's teaching on this subject. So he's got this little section in here. It's called The Believer's Relation to the Law. And I would like to read it to you. The law is that system of legislation given by God through Moses to the nation of Israel. The entire body of the law is found in Exodus 20 through 31. It's in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So you, you'll get it all going through those, all those books. Though its essence is embodied in the Ten Commandments. That's the, pretty much the basic of it. Uh, it's the Ten Commandments, but really there's 613 laws when you really break it all down and look at it all. But then you can kind of go back to the Ten Commandments, and then Jesus in the New Testament, he goes back to two. He just loved the Lord God 
and then treat your neighbor as yourself. And that those two, you'll fulfill the ten if you get those two right. And the only way you can do it is through him. The law was not given as a means of salvation. It was designed to show people their sinfulness and then drive them to God for his gracious salvation. It was given to the nation of Israel even though it contains moral principles which are valid for people in every age. That's very true. There's a lot of things in the, in, in the laws of, of Israel that when, when people adhere to those things, as far as, I mean, there's some crazy laws. If you go back and you look at all the 613 that I'm talking about, it gets into some really detailed stuff. Um, something as simple as septic systems. You thought that wasn't in the Bible? Go back and look. Look at what happened in uh, Europe with all of the plague. The sewer system was out the back door in a big gully. If you read what the Bible says about that situation, you would be doing septic systems like we do them here in America. It's down in the ground. So they had open sewer in Europe, which brought the rats in. And the rats had the fleas on them. And nobody knew it was the fleas biting people and it was the blood, transfer of blood. And that's what people call, call the plague. You think COVID's bad? COVID's nothing compared to the plague. So though, if, you, if people and nations, they honor what God, if they learn from the laws of God, they'll be a better society. Just plain and simple. If you're trying to get salvation from the law, that's a totally different story. You can't, you're not going to get that. Its purpose is to point you to Jesus. God tested, tested Israel under the law as a sample of the human race, the is, and Israel's guilt proved the world's guilt. The law had attached to it the penalty, penalty of death, and to break one commandment was to be guilty of all. Since people had broken the law, they were under the curse of death. God's righteousness and holiness demanded that the penalty, penalty be paid. So, you see where this is leading to. You deserve death. You have to die because of your sin. But there, all the little lambs that had to die, the innocent lambs had to die throughout time. They, people would bring the, the animals to the temple and they would sacrifice the animals in your stead. Well, it was all leading to Jesus, the Lamb of God is going to come. Okay? So I'm not going to read. It's a whole lot more uh, about, th- that, about that here. But I'm not going to get into all of that. But you're more than welcome to go to Scripture Truth and buy your own. <laughs> nah, you can borrow this if you want. If you can carry it, you can borrow it. I won't miss it too bad. All right. Now, I got a little gift for you. This little pamphlet is called Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth. And it's fr- it's, it was written by C.I. Schofield, which, that's my new Bible right there, which I've had Schofield Bible for years and years. I've worn them out, had to retire them and get a new one, and I just retired my second, you know, the other one I have, the one I've, I'm always got up here. And I went and got that one because it's large print. That's my story. 
And C.I. Schofield, I like his notes. He's not perfect. John Phillips is not perfect. I am not perfect. Yeah, I will say something that might not be right. It's not my intention, but, you know, there are certain commentaries that I always avoided because I just did not... There was something that they said that really... And there's certain things you got to just discount them. You, you know, they said something that's way off. But you got to be careful not to be overly critical. Because if I was that way, then I wouldn't read John Phillips anymore. I wouldn't read, I wouldn't have a Schofield Bible. And I learned something from the Unashamed podcast, Jace, on the Unashamed podcast. He said, you got to learn to spit the bones out. Because they're fishermen and they love fish and they catch fish and they grill them up and they do all kinds of great things and they love the fish. Well, you got this fish that you caught and it's laying there and somebody says, well, you might not want to eat that. You might, there might be a bone in it and you could choke on it. Uh, are you going to not eat any fish anymore because there's a chance that that bone might get stuck in your throat? So he said, I'm not, I, I'm, it's good stuff. I'm eating it. I'll just spit the bones out. That we got to be that way, because no human is perfect, and we can learn a lot from people. So, uh, rightly dividing the word of truth. There's one for Shar. There's one for you guys. Steve and Karen can share that one. Thank you. Dan and Joy can share one. Ronnie, you want one? Rightly dividing the word of truth. you got a Schofield Bible now. Yeah. Remember, uh, just not that long ago, I was saying that it is critical that Christians learn to differentiate. Just, you know, rightly dividing the word of God, the word of truth. In the back of this thing, you'll notice it says, uh, there are important divisions in the Bible. The Jew, the Gentile, and the church. That's something I had on my list. See, I just got these yesterday. So, the seven dispensations. People freak out. Some people, they freak out over dispensation. Oh, my gosh. Uh, the two advents. When we, we were talking about Jesus speaking in the synagogue, and he quoted what we know is Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. He quoted half of verse 2. Well, the two advents... The reason he didn't say the second half because the two advents were together in one verse, which they didn't have verses back then, but the people knew it well. We know of it as verse 2. The two resurrections, five judgments, law and grace. That's what we were just talking about just a minute ago. The believer's two natures. The believer's standing and state. Salvation and rewards. So there's, you, you, you hear about earning rewards, earning crowns in heaven. For, when you get to heaven, you'll get crowned. But see, people get caught up in, well, I'm earning my salvation. I want, I want those. No, no. You're, the salvation part's a free gift. There's no earning to it. But after you get your salvation and you're living a Christian life, then you go do things that the Holy Spirit is leading you to do and when you do a good job in all of that, you, you get crowns, okay? And then, uh, true believers and mere professors. So all of that's in here. And uh, I've re- So the one on uh, 
the believer's two natures. I, I, was, I went right to that one, and I read that one. So there's one little tiny thing that I don't like when preachers say, uh, you must mortify your members, mortify the members, and then they say, which means put to death. Well, putting something to death would cause you to mortify it. But the Bible tells us that the old man is crucified. For you to try to put the old man to death, first of all, that's murder. That's suicide. That's, that's not right. You don't have to kill something to mortify it. And if you try to kill something, the Bible says I was already dead, then you're kind of going against what the Bible says. It's believing what God has said about you over what you see in yourself. Because we do have this fleshly nature that's still there. But we got verses that say when you believe, all things have become new. Old things have passed away. And then you walk away from that verse and go, it feels like it's still there. You know, I heard, I've heard people say, they got saved and everything changed, but yet nothing changed. Right? And it's true. It's, I, I heard uh, somebody say, it's, it's the real and the more real. So you, here on earth, it's the real. Here's the facts. This is what we're dealing with. This is uh, decay and darkness. I mean, this is what we're dealing with, but then there's the more real. The real is you're walking around in your flesh. That's the real, and it's a struggle. The real is you're walking around in this world. The real is the devil's always trying to get you down, but there's the more real. And we've got to look at what the Bible says about the more real and believe it, and then you'll be people of faith. Then you'll have victory. All right, we're done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for this word that we love so much. And Father, I, I, thank you for filling us. Thank you for being the water, the living water that if we drink from, we will never thirst again. Thank you, Lord. Father, be with these people that have come out tonight. Give them a blessing. And Father, anybody who's listening to this, I pray that you will touch them in their minds and in their hearts, and that they will be better equipped to do what you've called us to do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.